This is Amy Kadakia and Kylie Grillo, and you're listening to Inside Ohio State Sweet, the Steminist Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. This episode, we're going to be discussing emotional wellness, and the emotional wellness definition is the emotionally well person can identify, express, and manage the entire range of feelings and would consider seeking assistance to address areas of concern. And just before we start here, we want to put a disclaimer that we are not professionals by any means in mental health or emotional wellness, and these are just discussions surrounding our own personal experiences, and not every experience will apply to everyone. And if you're struggling with your mental health, please consider seeking any necessary professional help. So today on the podcast, we have Emily. She graduated in May 2021 with a degree in biological engineering. She currently works at Abbott as a quality engineer and as part of their rotational development program. If you want to say hi, Emily. Hi, everyone. Glad to be back. I miss Ohio State some, not going to lie. I miss the weather in Ohio. Never thought I'd say that, but here we are in Chicago. I never thought anyone would ever say that. Um, (laughs) I know. It's the snow. It's the snow. I wasn't ready. I was not prepared. (laughs) Well, um, speaking of Ohio State, could you tell us a little bit about your experience and with Ohio State Suite? but also at Ohio State in general. Yeah, absolutely. So as Amy said, I was part of the biological engineering program. So part of that wonderful Fabby department over on West Campus across the bridge. I really enjoyed my time within the department, but it took a minute for me to get there because those pre-major courses they have you take, they say they're not weed out, but they're definitely weed out courses. But once I finally got into my engineering courses, I knew I was set. I knew this is what I wanted and I was able to excel after that. So within my time at Ohio State, I didn't just study the books. I also did a lot with undergraduate research. So I worked in the Andre Palmer Artificial Blood Research Lab, where I was working to develop nanoparticles of hemoglobin to work as a red cell substitute. So it was very exciting work and I actually did get published lead author. So I highly encourage anyone who is interested in research to try to seek out positions there. It is a wonderful opportunity and a great jumpstart to finding out if a lab work is your passion or not. I also did co-ops. So I co-opted with the Hershey company, very different than my lab work. So I worked from benchtop to pilot plant to plant work, developing all kinds of really fun confections which pretty sweet gig. Yes, I use that pun all the time. And it was an amazing experience there. So great in the food industry, but it's very different in the food industry compared to the medical industry, which is where I am now. So I also interned with Abbott and then I ended up going full-time with Abbott and that's where I am now, working on the Binax Now COVID test and I work in manufacturing with the manufacturing of the COVID test. Amy, I didn't know if you were about to say something. I would... Yeah, so I was gonna ask, this is kind of related, not related to medical, but did you get to try any of the confections? <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so in the food industry, when you are in process development and you are making things, especially things that are flavored, 
you have to taste test them. So I was working on a new Twizzler product because they were trying to make an apple flavored type Twizzler. So when we were testing out flavorings, we had to test different amounts of flavoring. So we'd pump it out and then we'd test half of it. It's like, is this too intense? Is this too low intense? And then you adjust it a little bit and then you keep taste testing it. And it was great. But then you're running around the plant all day, the pilot plant, so you work it off at the same time. It's a fun gut time. Little candy bowls everywhere. I chose the wrong industry. <laughs> let me tell you. I think I'm missing out on something. Yeah. And I feel like I would be on a sugar rush all day. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> how you keep going. You develop some really good willpower. But yeah, at Abbott, it's very different, but it's still just as rewarding because you're able to give back to patients in a very different way. While at Hershey, it's like you give a chocolate bar to a kid and then you get this huge smile on their face. But now working at Abbott, you have a lot more direct patient contact. I mean, the impact it has on the family is insane. And as I said, I work on the COVID-19 test right now. And the sense of just security that people feel once they take a self-test to know that they're not going to infect their families anymore is very rewarding. Yes, the manufacturing environment is intense there, especially since we've got a bunch of contracts and then we... We're trying to pump out as many tests as we can. So it's high productivity. So it's very intense at times, but it's still, sometimes you have to step back and look at the big picture. Like this is what the world needs right now. I can sacrifice a little bit of my time because it's not going to be forever. I mean, fingers crossed, but yeah. Yeah, that's definitely an important role to have right now. So thank you for what you're doing for everyone. That's really big. Um, so you talked a little bit about what you're doing now, but can you tell us more about the development program you're in and like the different roles you've had and then more about like what your specifically, what your role is in producing these tests? Yeah, absolutely. So I first interned at Abbott and I was in uh, nutrition. Uh, so Abbott makes nutritional products such as Ensure, Pediasure, Pedialyte, which has saved us many a nights in college if you are of legal age. Um, and then a bunch of other uh, like Similac and stuff and some other infant formulas. Um, I worked a lot in quality roles, trying to develop and figure out different uh, test mechanisms for how things work. How are we doing it across different plants? Um, how can we align across those plants to make sure we aren't over-testing or under-testing products? And then I accepted a position in the operations professional development program. So this is a three-year program and each year you're in a different role in a div different division in a different location. So your first year is technical. So you do a lot of technical work, whether it's Excel, manufacturing, hands-on type things. Next role, supervisory. So you learn a lot about people management. And then the third role is in OPEX or operational excellence. So it's a lot of uh, Lean Six Sigma type projects or optimization. And with that third role, it's anywhere but your home country. So it's somewhere international, which is a big draw for me because I really want to develop those global type relations. That yeah, that's a really great opportunity. Yeah. So, yeah, and there's opportunities all over the world because Abbott's a global company. So there's Ireland. There's uh, I've heard some opportunities in Spain, uh, Switzerland, which is where I'm gunning for, and then Germany. Some in South South Korea, uh, China, Malaysia, Singapore. Let's see, Colombia is a new one. Argentina, Brazil. 
it's basically pick a country and then <laughs> you have an opportunity. So, but yeah, currently um, I'm working as a quality engineer. So I was working in Abbott Transfusion Medicine within their quality division, doing a lot with um, audit prep, uh, different types of how do we better prepare to make sure we're standing up to within our quality systems and making sure that things are aligned and we're giving the best possible quality to our products so that you know they we can provide the best possible care for patients. Then at the beginning of the year, I was transitioned to support the COVID-19 effort. So Abbott makes a COVID-19 test called Binex Now. Uh, it's the big blue box. It says Binex Now on the front. I think they should have made the Abbott logo a little bit bigger, but that's just me and my own ego tacking. But um, this test is very special uh, because it's one of the most reliable and gold standard uh, self-tests out there on the market. And it's been very impactful to just different people. I've had, when people found it, I was working on it. They started coming out of the woodwork asking for tests. So I was like, this is great. I didn't think you liked me and I know you still don't like me, but you like our product, thanks. So it's rewarding in that sense, but it is intense because it's a very fast paced manufacturing environment. And since it came to market so quickly, it's a hundred percent manual process. So if any of you guys have been in a manufacturing environment, especially with engineering, for the most part, you know, there's a lot of automation going on because that's the future because it's quicker, it's faster, there's less mistakes involved, but since it's so quick, it's 100% manual. So as my role as a quality engineer is to make sure we uphold the standards of quality that Abbott has with this product. So it's a lot of making sure everyone's trained properly, making sure all the documentation's properly in place, that everything is controlled in the right way, and that we can produce a large number of tests that are at the best quality for people who really need them, because we really need them at this time. So. Wow, yeah. that's incredible. I never thought, I really didn't think that you guys were doing it manually. I know how quickly uh, COVID tests and rapid tests, are, they're coming out. Um, and I don't know why I just assumed that it worked the, similarly to our classic manufacturing facilities. I personally have experience working in a manufacturing facility through an engineering co-op. So I just, I'm imagining that, but you saying that everything's done manually, I'm like, wow, I don't even know what to think. <laughs> yeah. That is, that is crazy. Like just thinking of like when we all these shortages of tests, it's like no wonder, like these are all being made by hand because it's just been developed so quickly. So like, yeah, it's just crazy to think about it. Yeah, because like I mean, that's the easiest way to do it. I, we, there are developing certain automated processes and stuff, but it's, I mean, it's the easiest way to get a large amount of stuff out the door. So it's a lot of risk management involved with different things. Uh, it's a great learning opportunity for sure. It's a very, very intense environment. And it's a lot of people management as well that I have never expected before because it's basically managing 160 people in one hub at a time. And there's six different hubs and making sure you're the one quality engineer and it's like, okay, gotta do this, you know, make sure we're all good to go. And we are for the most part. Which is, which is very exciting, very nerve wracking, but very exciting. That's awesome. Do you face then a lot of pressure like with your job 
especially being quality control, you're probably looking at all kinds of things and maybe some products do not look or meet up, meet up to the specs. So is it stressful? <laughs> Whenever you're in a quality role, whether it's food, medical, automotive, anywhere, quality will always get the finger pointed at them for things because everything is so 100% production focused. So everything is, let's get the product out, gotta get the product out 100%, come on, come on, more, 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 more. That quality, they try to make quality take a back seat no matter the industry. And as a quality person, you really have to step up and you really have to trust the company to have quality at the forefront. And I bet they do. They always have quality at the forefront. So yes, there is a lot of pressure, especially because there's such high tension when it comes to this COVID-19 test because it's so wanted. So obviously it's 100% production focused, but as the quality engineer, you have to, I know I always have to step up in the hubs and it's like, yes or no, is this good? Is this bad? Can this pass? And there are certain standards, certain tests that we have to really make sure it's like, yes, no. And, but sometimes you have to make that decision and it is intense sometimes, but you learn, you've gone through training and you know what your product is, you know, in your gut, yes or no, this is wrong. And I'm in an environment where my managers and my supervisors, they all support me and what kind of whatever decision you make, as long as it's not an absolutely horrible, like this is, this is not quality decision. So it's, it's an intense environment. And sometimes, yes, I have cried in an airlock before, but away from production people. But at the end of the day, I know that my management supports me in my decisions and that I am competent enough and confident enough to make those decisions, even though it is an intense environment. But you're never gonna walk into a manufacturing plant and it not be an intense environment. That's just kind of how it is. Some days it's going to be more low key than others, but there's always little firefights in manufacturing. That's kind of how it goes. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of you, you talking about your, your like training experience into this role, could you talk a bit more about what it was like transitioning from like your undergrad experience, but then your roles also in undergrad and then now going to this full-time position in this development program and being in new locations. Like, could you just uh, share some of your, share some light and experience about that? Yeah. So in undergrad, uh, as I said, I did a lot with research. Uh, so I did a lot with artificial blood and then I was so excited because my first role was in transfusion medicine at a college. So it was kind of a, a good fit for me. And then I got to see that different side of it. I knew I wanted to be in quality initially because I, at the end of the day, I want to be in new product development, research, all of that new discovery, because that's where my passion lies in that innovation, discovery, pushing the boundaries. But there are big boundaries, especially set by the FDA. The FDA and the DEA are terrifying forces that will come in and try to rip you apart. That's how it is. That's how governing agencies are. Not to sugarcoat it. Please don't come for me if you're FDA or DEA watching this, but it's how it is sometimes. So you have to make sure within quality, you know, those regulations, you know, those boundaries and which is why I wanted to be in this role first. So I understood those and I can work around those. And then 
I can transition into, okay, let's develop this. And it's like, hold on, A, we don't have this technology, B, this isn't within any regulations, let's pivot. So it's a lot of understanding where your gaps are and within college, because you're gonna have them, no one's perfect. My ego likes to tell me I am, but I'm not. So you have to understand that and try to see if you can figure those out. It's better to figure them out before entering the role, but sometimes you do when you enter into full-time. But you have people there to support you, whether it's in mentors, friends, colleagues, you'll figure them out pretty quickly. And then you have to be able to take the initiative to fill them. Sometimes your management will step up and say, hey, how about you take this training course and try to you know, understand this more, but sometimes they won't. So you have to be brave enough to realize okay, I need to understand this regulatory body more. I need to understand this process more and ask questions. And whether it's of operators, whether it's of senior director, just whoever, but it is important to recognize your gaps and try to fill them either with people or with more knowledge. So was it like, easier to transition to industry than you thought just because it was like you had the research so you were kind of in that industry and like working with that type of thing I will be completely honest by the time college was over I was exhausted I ended up doing five years because I co-opted and my final year it was pandemic so I didn't have a lot of the graduating experiences that most people have of you know, being able to go out, party, you know, senior bar crawl, or, you know, even just in-person classes saying goodbye to old friends and such. So it was a very different experience and a very exhausting experience because I am immunocompromised just from very high stress levels and some other medical things that I have. So I had to be incredibly cautious when it came to COVID. And my mom has rheumatoid arthritis. So I had to, if I wanted to see her, I needed to make sure I was incredibly cautious as well. So it changed my mindset a lot. And by the time college was ending, I was like, I'm done. I'm done with the stress of classes. I'm done with the being judged by a letter grade on an exam being just even judge by myself and my peers, what I felt like, even though they may be trying to support me, I was always my harshest critic. I still am my harshest critic, but I have more honest people around me and my management. So by the time college ended, I was like, I'm done. I'm ready to, it felt like I was ready to escape almost. And so when I transitioned to industry, I was like, this is great. I work nine to five, I can come home and I don't have to worry about anything else. I can just do whatever I want, whether it's watch TV, whether it's go out to eat, whether it's spend time with some friends. It was fantastic because I could finally do the self-care that I always wanted to do and that I always felt I couldn't do or didn't deserve. And then, so it was great at first, but then there was that call to action for COVID test support. And I was transitioning to that. So I'm transitioning again and that's been a very tough transition for me because it went from nine to five on during the week, you had your evenings, you had your weekend, 
And now I work, I work weekends. So I work 12 hour shifts from 9am to 9pm on Saturday and Sunday. It's really more like 14 hours each day. And then I come I, Monday, Tuesday, I also come into the office. So yes, I have three days off. But by the time I get to Tuesday, I am completely exhausted that I've almost got to do a whole staycation on Wednesday. Like I have not left my apartment today. And Thursday is another like partial recovery day. Friday is like, okay, I'm good to go. And Saturday comes down and it's like, darn it, I got to go back over there. So it's, it's been an adjustment for me. And I have noticed myself relapsing in some of my pretty bad habits, but I've recognized them and I'm able to catch them now. I'm able to understand my triggers. I know when I'm starting to relapse and now I'm able to catch myself because I'm able to hold myself accountable. And I also have other people around me who hold me accountable. So it's taken a bit, a bit, but I have been able to pivot and has been going a little bit better. Yes, there are days where I come home and cry or even cry at work. If you do cry at work, that's okay. Go into the bathroom, find somewhere where people cannot see you or a trusted colleague and then let it out and come back and you're gonna be your best self. So that's been a harder adjustment for me. So um, you kind of talked a little bit about being burnt out in college and, and now um, working so much. So um, we wanted to give the definition of burnout, which is a state of emotional, physical, and mental exhaustion caused by excessive and prolonged stress. It occurs when you feel overwhelmed, emotionally drained, and unable to meet constant demands. So um, you talked a little bit about like having burnout, but what are some ways that you've helped overcome it or just like tips that help you get over burnout? Everyone's gonna experience burnout. You wanna try, it's, I mean, it's like a car engine. You know, you fill up the tank of gas and you're good to go, but then you get to that point where you're empty and you're running on empty, but you can't run too far on empty or your car's literally gonna stop. And you can't do anything else until you fill it back up with gas, call AAA, pray for a good Samaritan who's actually a good Samaritan. So you need to make sure you try to reach, you understand your limits. You understand your boundaries. Boundaries was always a very difficult thing for me because I'm a people pleaser. I always say yes to opportunity. And that got me in trouble a lot of times because I'd end up putting so much on my plate that I could not handle it at all. And I needed to realize it was okay to say no. It's okay to set up boundaries saying at this time, I am going to leave work. My family is my priority. I am going to take a vacation to go with them. You are allowed to take time and set boundaries. It does not make you a lesser person or a lesser worker. A lot of my life, I find validation around my career. So I really needed to set boundaries when it came to my work, because when I was doing research, my research lab, <laughs> my best friend and roommate, uh, she would track my location and it'd be like 10 o'clock at night and she'd come up. It's like, OK, where is she? Ah, she's in the lab. Emily, why are you still in lab? And it's like, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. 
And I distinctly remember one night I was in there and I worked a lot with what's called sonication. So it's a probe device that just sends ultrasonic waves into a solution. And I could not get this probe tip off to save my life. And I was just so exhausted by that point. And I was literally sitting on the floor of the lab about to ball my eyes out when one of the other undergrads come in and he's just like, what the hell? And he gets it off for me. And I was like, thank you, thank you. And then my sister comes in and, and she's like, you weren't responding to me. Here's pizza. I know you haven't eaten. So it was... Yeah, that was a very low moment for me, but I was glad I had people around me to try to help pull me out. And that was the start of when I really realized I needed to set boundaries. Did I set them right after that? Absolutely not, because I hadn't come full circle yet. But I do now. I set limits to myself. It's like, okay, I do not have to say yes, even if it's just going out with friends and I'm just drained. I'm not going to say yes to it because I know I need to stay home. But there are different types of burnouts you will feel throughout life. So there's four types that I've been told that there are. So there's physical, mental, emotional, and efficacy. So physical is when you're just so physically drained, you just can't move. So if you've been on your feet all day, you know, if it's like you have a waitressing job, manufacturing job, and you just need to physically rest. Mental is when intellectually you're just tapped out. I felt this so much throughout college because you get to a point where there's just so much stuff being stuffed into your brain from photography to fluid dynamics, heat and mass transfer, this random world history thing that you need. And it's just so much that you cannot physically think anymore or even innovate. You have zero drive to think. Emotional is when you're just emotionally tapped out because you've been taking on so many other people's emotions or you just have so many emotions turmoiling inside you, whether it's love, whether it's hate, whether it's exhaustion, whether it's sadness, and you're just not allowing yourself to feel that or let it out. Or like I said, you're just taking on everyone else's emotions and becoming almost in your own emotional punching bag as you're trying to make everyone else feel better when you sometimes you need to put yourself first. You need to be selfish. You're allowed to be selfish sometimes. And efficacy, that was a new one I learned. And that's when you physically just have too much on your plate. You just have this long to-do list and there's too much on it. You've said yes to too much and you physically just cannot do it to a point where you almost shut down because of it. I did that a lot throughout college and even now to an extent, but I've realized I can say no a little bit more. But in college, I was doing classes, I was doing research, I was very involved in SWE, I was trying to maintain somewhat of a social life. I was trying to be a good girlfriend to a guy who did not deserve it. And it just kept going on and on. My list was just never ending. And it finally got to a point where in college, I was experiencing all four of them. And it got to a point where I was breaking. And it was very tough. And sometimes you just 
have to reach that rock bottom in order to kind of realize that you need help. And I luckily I did seek help. I sought help in friends and family and in professional help. I saw a therapist regularly, especially my last semester of college, because I could not handle a lot of what was emotionally going on inside me. And I was just exhausted to the point where it was very dark. So I recognized that I fixed what I could myself and I was able to get myself physically strong again. And then I was like, okay, now I need to get myself emotionally strong again, which is where the therapy really came in and really helped. It is not a weakness to go to therapy. I remember, especially all throughout high school and just society in general, it's like, oh, only when people go to therapy, like therapies for losers, therapies for people who just can't handle it and stuff. It's not. It is very much not. It is okay to seek help from someone who is professionally trained to know how to deal with something. If I am going to try to fix my car, if it is something other than putting air on a tire or changing the oil, I have no idea what's going on in that engine. I am going to a professional mechanic to fix it. If I have no idea what's going on in my turmoil, emotional brain, I am going to go to a professional to help me fix that, so. Yeah, everything you just said was so powerful. I, it's in college, especially in engineering, it's like, go, go, go. And like, you have to do this and that. And most of us are like, have academic validation. And like, I know me and a lot of other people have issues with all the boundaries. So just it's being hard. able to like put yourself first and like take care of yourself. Like, I want to say that I'm proud of you. And like, that's amazing. And it's great to like get to that point and just realize you have to put yourself first and do what you need to do for yourself. I will say it's hard. I'm still not an expert at it. I'm not perfect at it. And it took me five years throughout college to admit that to myself. So if you are not at that point yet, do not feel bad about it. You're still learning. You're still growing. I'm still learning every day about things that I need for myself as your life changes, as different things change and you yourself have different needs. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess it's kind of proof that it always, you know, it, it gets better from here, wherever you're at, it always can always get better. So it does, but you have to make sure you yourself are dedicated to becoming better because if you're not, then there's no place to go. I mean, that's what happened to me. So backstory time. My lowest point came after a very bad car accident I was in. I'm very open about this, but the story goes, it's not a story, it's real life. So true story goes, I was just came back from presenting at SWE National Conference, my research, and I was super excited, super proud. I didn't win, so I was pretty bummed about that because I'm a very competitive person, but I decided to be a good girlfriend and go pick up my then boyfriend from the airport. So I was driving and it was first snow in Columbus and all the predatory tow truck drivers were out. Uh, we love shamrock towing. And one tow truck was backing out the wrong way on a one-way street with his toe down 
on a blind curve and I was coming up the main street and my little Civic got impaled, literally. Engine was knocked off its block. The dashboard was pushed into me, airbags went off. I was knocked out and I was in a lot of pain, but I wasn't willing to admit it to myself. I got up, I called AAA because I did not want the police to come and impound my car. So I was like, we're gonna get a tow truck driver out here that didn't just slam into my car. And then the tow truck driver called the police to file the report. And I was bad enough to the point where even the police officers were saying, are you sure you don't want us to call an ambulance? Are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? And then my then boyfriend ended up coming up and then he ended up taking me to the hospital. Well, it was the health center. And then he dropped me off and he drove away. So I walked into the health center and I was alone. I freaked out the receptionist. I freaked out the nurse who then got me on a shuttle to the actual ER, which I was about to walk to. And then I was admitted and it took a while for a doctor to actually see me. I was passed around from chair to chair. And at that point, the shock had kind of worn off and I was just in extreme pain. Finally, a doctor sees me. I'm telling him my pain, what happened, everything. And I told him that I have severe pelvic pain, but I was rubbing my back at the time because I was in one uncomfortable chair to another. He's like, okay, you're fine. Just go home. You're probably just bruised. I was like, are you sure? Because my pelvis hurts really bad. So then he goes to touch my pelvis again and I flinch. He barely touches it, butterfly tap, like in freeze tag. And I flinch so bad. He goes, oh, I thought you just didn't know where your pelvis was. I look at him. I hope it was a look of, are you serious? So, do you need me to list my credentials? So I was finally admitted and I was just in the ER for hours alone. And it was horrible. I was being passed around from CT scan to MRIs. And I thought the person who I thought was gonna show up didn't show up. I just kept waiting and waiting and they didn't. And it hurt. Finally, my best friend shows up and she, she goes, excuse me, why did you not tell me you were in the ER? So we love besties. And then we got to figure it out. And then I was like, okay, I'm fine. I'm going to push through. I need to be able to be there for myself. But I pushed myself too far. And then I ended up back in the hospital a few days later with stroke-like symptoms. Turns out it was a very severe concussion. It took a very long time for me to recover both physically and mentally from that. A, just that sense of general abandonment, feeling like no one was there for me. And also physically, just because I physically could not do anything. I couldn't hold down food. I couldn't focus on schoolwork. So I had to really begin to shift my mindset and focus on me. It took a while for me to do that because I was still trying to be that nothing hurts me person of I need to be the best girlfriend. I need to be the best, best friend. I need to be the best student. I need to do this, that, and the other. And it got to the point 
where my best friend and roommate came out and said, you are not allowed to leave this apartment because you are so injured. And she basically just barred the door, not literally, but she was there and I physically could not move. So I then allowed myself to recover. I went to the physical therapy I needed because yes, you do need physical therapy for severe concussions. And I was able to get myself better. I am no longer with the guy who left me alone in the ER. Don't worry. It took me a while to admit that and actually leave that situation. And I'm better for it in the end. And at this point, it's become a learning experience. It still hurts sometimes because that hurt is never going to go away when you've had various traumatic experiences. It just becomes kind of like a ball in a jar is how I look at it. And when that experience first happens, your jar is kind of small. And but that ball is still the same time size. But as you grow and you learn more and you experience more, your jar gets bigger and bigger. So even though that ball stays the same size, it doesn't hurt you as much. Sometimes it'll come up and you know bang the sides of the glass sometimes, but you're a better person now. And you're able to actually work through it and that ball's no longer gonna break you anymore. That is such a good analogy to describe how like traumatic experience and unpleasant experiences can affect your life, but then you grow from them and become a stronger person, like you were saying. So um, I think that was a really great visual or verbal visual that you gave. (laughs) Yeah, I will also say some traumas you're not going to become stronger from. I've had those experiences as well. Sometimes they're just become what they are. It doesn't make you lesser of a person for not you know, going all Kelly Clarkson on it and, you know, what doesn't kill you make you stronger, but it's okay. It's okay to not fully heal from something. You do not have to forgive the person who caused that trauma. All you have to do is forgive yourself. And if you're not stronger, that's okay. But if you keep on living and you keep on being your best self, that's, that's all the world needs from you. And honestly, kudos to you for leaving that bad relationship. You know, I, I may have not known that guy or known what was going on at the time, but I'm very happy that you are doing much better now and out of a relationship that seemed to have not been serving you good. So yeah, full truth. I was not the one who initiated it, the breakup. So it's like, that's okay too, ladies. It yeah. happens sometimes. I knew I was in a bad situation, but I didn't know how to get out of it. I, well, I knew how, but I was, I was in love and I was like, relationships last forever. I fight for it. I got to work for it. I'm a fixer. I'm an engineer. I fix things. I can fix this, right? Sometimes things are too broken to be fixed and you have to admit that to yourself and it's not your fault. So he realized that before I did and, but it ended mutually at the same time. So don't feel bad if that kind of happens too. It's like, you do not have to be this strong, independent woman all the time and stuff that media and society makes it out to be, especially women in STEM. It's like, oh, we are these strong stoic creatures who need no man and need no support. It's like, no, you're allowed to have a significant other 
who helps you through different things, who treats you good and helps you care for you. You're allowed to want that. You don't have to want to be single and you don't have to want to be in a relationship. Both sides are perfectly fine. Yeah, definitely. It's like society makes us sound like we're like unicorns or something. Like, come on. I know. Oh, it gets me. And then you open a magazine and it's like, oh, I need that perfect body too. What? Oh, Excuse yeah. me. Don't even get me started with that one. Oh gosh, I know. <laughs> that's that's society. Yeah, but you know, I think everything you said about burnout, really great um points and very educational how you brought up the four different types. And I know that you had also mentioned some parts related to how you are heavily focused on your career and something that I do know that a lot of people face when related to their career or just whatever that they're doing and proving themselves is imposter syndrome. So uh, to give a definition, a loose definition of what imposter syndrome is, it is defined as doubting your abilities and feeling like a fraud. It's disproportionately affects high achieving people who find it difficult to accept their accomplishments. So since going into industry, can you talk about your experience with imposter syndrome and what that kind of looked like for you? That's... Imposter syndrome you will face in all aspects of your life, whether it's your appearance, whether it's your work, whether it's your personal relationships, it doesn't matter. In some way, shape, or form, the little voice inside your head, for me, it's the snagging one called anxiety and depression that just keep going where it's like, you're not good enough, you're not good enough, you're not good enough. Sometimes you, have, you just have to figure out how to turn that off. You're never going to be able to turn it off fully, but in my work, I am very confident in what I can achieve and how I can achieve it. But if I don't achieve to my level of expectation, even though it meets the requirement and meets the ask and people are very happy and satisfied with the end result, if it's not to my standards, I'm very upset by it. So even though people are saying, good job, I'm like, ah. I could have done better. Or even when I know I did my best and people are like, this is awesome. It's like, ah, oh, thanks. It was no big deal. When in reality, this is an awesome tool or this is an awesome result that you just been, were able to do. So it's very important to accept those compliments instead of saying, oh, it's okay. You know, I could have done better or like, oh yeah, it was a experience. Say, thank you. Thank you. I worked really hard on this. Thank you for recognizing this. Thank you. I'm very proud of this work. Accept that. Note it down, whether it's mentally, whether it's on word or on paper, just keep that. And then when you're having a very bad day, look back at those. It's like, I did accomplish something. I know some people use bullet journals. Some people use other means. I just remember it. I just look back and it's like, I was published as an undergrad. I did this amazing work at Hershey that's now being implemented and reduced the process from 12 hours to 10 minutes. I'm doing great work at Abbott that's changing the world. You have to step back and look at that big picture. A big one that I'm dealing with right now is my general appearance. So when I look in the mirror, sometimes I'm happy, 
sometimes I love my body. A lot of times I don't. It's not to the standard that society sees me as. So I feel like I should be doing something better. I should be exercising more. I should be eating a different way. I should be doing something different to the point where I don't always see myself as attractive. I see myself as a cute nerd because that's the role I was typecast in. I mean, even back in, you know, elementary, middle school, we'd have to go around and, you know, write one word you think about this person. For me, it was always smart, smart, kind, smart, kind. So that's how I started to validate myself. I was the smart person and that was it. I didn't see myself as attractive. I saw myself as sometimes nice, but I was smart and that's what I was. And so when I got to college and I was no longer a big fish in a small pond, my whole world turned to 180. I was in a room full of other smart people. So who was I? What was my identity now? And then I was like, okay, it'll just be good grades. I'll be the smartest of the smart. That's how it's going to be. And it wasn't that way. I got a C on my first chemistry exam. I got a lot of C's because I didn't know how to study because I wasn't prepared for the level that college was. And I was like, who am I? Am I supposed to be in engineering? I was the smart person. Now I'm not the smart person because this letter grade is telling me different. And I spiraled. And it got to the point where I controlled what I could control. Disclaimer, I am going to talk a little bit about eating disorders. Hi, everyone. Here Emily does mention eating disorders. So if you would like to skip this part, please skip to 49 minutes in the episode. Thank you. So that control came from me developing an eating disorder where I started using food as a reward. Okay, you you can eat when you finish this homework assignment. You can eat when, you can eat when, you can eat when. Food isn't a reward. It's nourishment for your body. It's what you need to keep going and what you need to succeed. But that's how I found that sense of control. That is not how you should find that control. I still deal with that on the daily, but I have found ways to cope with it. So there are days where I feel that insignificant imposter syndrome coming and I feel myself relapsing. Different people will relapse in different ways. You do not have to develop an eating disorder to experience imposter syndrome, please do not do that. But for me, that's what happens. So I tend to relapse back into that state of what can I control? What can I control? And sometimes it will go to eating again. But I've now realized that a product I use a lot is called Ensure. It's a nutrition product. Abbott makes it not sponsored, kind of sponsored. (laughs) It's a great nutritional supplement that when I'm having a really bad day and I know I physically do not feel like eating, I can drink. It's a lot easier for me to hold down liquids. So that's what I'll do. If I'm having a really bad day in a different sense, I know I can call my sister. I know I can call my friends. 
I know I can go outside and walk around. You just find different ways of dealing with the point where you feel completely out of control, whether it's from imposter syndrome, whether it's from just different aspects of your life. There are different and healthy ways to regain control, whether it's just positive self-care techniques. I'll do puzzles a lot of times because in puzzles, there's one final answer that's a beautiful picture and it all fits together wonderfully. But there are healthy ways to go about it. And with imposter syndrome, it'll manifest in so many different ways. Just try to recognize it and catch it before it gets to a very bad, I need to control everything point, like how it happened with me. A lot of times is what I'm doing now at work is I'll talk to mentors. I have what I call my board of directors starting to set that up. So basically that's just a team of strong individuals who I admire, who I can go to for advice, whether it's about um, something more personal at work that's happening, whether it's about my actual work, what can I do better? And they will tell me a straight answer. I will go to them. I'll say, are you sure that I did enough? And they'll say, yes, yes, you did. You're killing it in this game. I'll go to them a lot for this new role that I'm in because it's very intense. And I'll say, this is what hap what's happening. How the heck do I deal with this situation? And they'll tell me. Like, okay, this is what's going to happen. You're not going to be able to control everything. This, but your management will support you and the decisions that you make. And they will support you even if you make a mistake. That's a big thing. You're allowed to mess up. You do not have to be this perfect version as a female engineer that's held on this pedestal who can make no mistakes, because you're allowed to. But it is important to admit them. Do not try to cover them up. Admit it, figure out how to fix it, and address it. Don't try to hide it. Don't try to cover it under the rug. Just don't do that. It'll end very badly. But your management will support you. If your management doesn't support you in the fix you're trying to do, maybe you're kind of in the wrong position or in the wrong role. Yes, as a female engineer, you will experience a lot more imposter syndrome. You will feel like when you walk in the room, you have to be perfect 100% of the time. A lot of times you do have to be better than the man that's sitting right next to you. But if you find the right culture, the right environment, the right board of directors, they will be there to sponsor you. It is not just about finding a mentor in your workplace or in life, but finding a sponsor, someone who will support you and get you to that next level that they know you are worthy of. So that is probably my biggest tip and my biggest resource for battling imposter syndrome is finding not only that mentor, but that sponsor, which is easier said than done sometimes. But make sure you cultivate those relationships early on. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for sharing that. But it's really hard because a lot of us like want to be in control and are scared to make mistakes and want to be perfect, but you can't. And yeah, that's also how college and society sets it up because we are literally graded 
And if you don't have a high enough grade, especially in those pre-major courses, you're not going to get into your major. That happened to me. I was chemi originally, and I didn't have a high enough GPA to get in. So I pivoted. I was like, what else is out there? And I found Fabi. And it was a game changer. Fabi department, so underrated. If you're even considering it, go. They're amazing. Awesome professors. Hell, I made beer in one of my courses and cheese. That was literally an experiment that we had to do. So it's, you end up finding your niche, even though it may seem like you failed at something. It just leads you down a path to something that can be even better. They are changing the application process. So um, the new dean, Dr. Howard, was talking about it at our meeting, but they're trying to make it more holistic and um, they're trying to, in a few years, like make it so when you apply to Ohio State as that major, then you're in and not the whole like coming and taking these classes and yes. maybe getting in. Yeah. And it's great. I, I love that. And I, Thank I love all the things she's doing. God. Oh my gosh. Cause that, that'll just lift so much stress off your shoulders. I know when I walked into Ohio State, I did not know I just signed up for a pre-major. I thought I was direct admit because that's how I was at every other college. And I went, excuse me. So I almost yeah, didn't is... go to Ohio State because I was like, I don't want to go and then not get in. Like I was scared and it's like, she was right. It's, it's not a great system. She was like, what, what is this? Why are you a pre-major and then applying? Like that doesn't make sense. So yeah, that's yeah. so exciting. I, I'm a little bit envious that Dean Howard wasn't there when I was there because the fact that the whole university is being led by a female engineer the College of Engineering is being led by a female engineer who was just recognized as like one of Swee's uh, people to well, engineers to know fun fact. And so it, I was so excited when all of them came on board. So I'm so excited to hear that because that is a big deterrent, especially for minorities in engineering of that pre-major because you have so many other stresses and so much else on your plate just coming in as someone who is not supposed to be an engineer by society standards. So by eliminating that barrier, oh my gosh, I, I can't wait to see some of the new metrics and stuff because I do that a lot. DE&I is a passion of mine, hence why I was very involved in SWE. But it's very, because I was looking at a lot of the recruitment stuff, especially for rotational programs and at Abbott. And they're saying, you know, it's like, oh, these are these numbers. It's like, I don't like those numbers. Well, I don't want, it should be more even. <laughs> what, what is this nonsense? Because in the medical field, you will see a lot more women. And the hard sciences, you will see a lot more women in general, just because women tend to migrate more towards science versus math. So in your engineering physics and your just physics, you'll see a lot more men in mathematics and stuff versus women. While in your BME, your chemi, your, and all that, you'll see a lot more women. So it'll be more 50-50. So in Abbott, what's nice is this science, hard science. So in engineering, yes, there is a little bit of a disparity, disparity but you'll see a lot more of that 50-50 ratio, which is nice to see. But when it comes to people of color or different backgrounds or ethnicities, you don't see a lot of that. Because when you think about inequities in life, a lot of people go towards race, religion, gender. But what about economic disparities? 
What about, um, you know, education? What about just general location? What about disabilities? What about, it's not just the big ones. There's a lot more inclusion that you need to think about. So it's, you have to flip your mind sometimes. I feel like you have to almost reprogram your brain of, even though this is what I'm seeing, it's not what I'm supposed to see. How can I actually see this now? What barriers are in place that I can help, you know, tear down, you know, society, tear down this wall type thing. It's exhausting, yes. And you are allowed to take a break sometimes from it and just focus on you and take a step back because you will get burnt out from that as well. Because a lot of times it feels like you're screaming into an abyss, but you'll have amazing people like Dean Howard come into play and be like, no, 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 no. We are going to take down this barrier and we are going to see what happens after that. And that's so exciting that, well, that at least you're seeing more 50-50, at least with Abbott, but definitely you're right that we need to start changing our mindset on, okay, this is, this, these statistics are not great. Okay, well, they're not good. We'll need to change it. No, don't accept it. Change it. <laughs> That's right. the mind. Because a lot of times in engineering, you'll see that disparity and then like, geez, what the heck? Why are these numbers so bad? But then mm -hmm. you go back to the colleges. Where are, where are people recruiting from? Colleges. What are those diversity metrics at the college? Not great. So a lot of times, if you look at a company, even though they are recruiting for diverse talent, you'll see a lot of the percentages be what the percentage of the top school they were recruiting from are within that major, because each major is different as well. So it's important for a company, I believe, to become, to attract diversity, not just, I hate it when people say you're a quota. I had that my freshman year of college, some guy, you're sitting in the hallway talking about careers and he's like, oh yeah, you're going to take from my job from me because you're going to be a quota hire. I was like, excuse me? No, I'm going to get hired because I'm better than you. That's how it is. It's another thing that causes imposter syndrome just because of men who can't take it. Sorry. So you're going to face that no matter what, but change is coming because industry is realizing we need that diversity in order to be better. Because think about it. Think about just the soap dispensers, you know, the automatic soap dispensers, put your hand under it. Does soap come out? For me, I have tiny hands. It was not built for people with smaller hands. So smaller hands is difficult. Any person of color, it was built for someone with white skin because that was the engineers who designed it. So, you know, black, brown, any type of pigmentation gonna have issues working that because that's how who designed it people will design to themselves even though they don't think about it so if you only have white male engineers in the room you know cis white male engineers straight people they're just they're going to design it so that it fits them and then they're going to say why are there so many issues why are so many women die and children dying in car accidents? Oh, maybe because we designed the airbags for the average male. Why isn't the soap dispensing? Maybe because you designed it for the average male. Why are women having issues with medication and dosages? Because it's designed and based on the average male. Same with clinical trials. You'll find it 
everywhere this disparity. And it's incredibly important to point it out, which is why you need to have different people in the room. You have every single voice represented in that room. And it's, it's hard to do sometimes because a lot of times people are just weeded out at the beginning, whether it's in middle school, whether it's in college, whether it's you know the minute they were born because everyone is gonna have privilege in life. It's not a bad thing, but it's important to recognize it and then understand how you can use your privilege to help other people get in the door as well. Because yes, this is a very competitive environment and it's very easy to try to tear other people down. I've noticed this a lot, especially in women, where we automatically think only one woman can be at the top. Only one can succeed. So we have to beat out all the other women and then we can take on all the men by ourselves, Wonder Woman style. No, no. Absolutely. Wow, Emily, I feel so inspired now. <laughs> yes, you you are one of the most inspiring people I've ever talked to. I'm not even kidding you. Your story is amazing. And I just, I know everyone listening to this is going to be inspired and just amazed by you and everything mm-hmm. you've gone through and everything you've achieved is so amazing and mm-hmm. I want to say like I am proud of you yes. if no one else tells you that today I'm proud of you thank you um thank you Emily for coming on the podcast you really appreciate it everything that you said was extremely valuable and I'm sure that our listeners also feel the same way um again we are not experts or professionals in mental health or any of the topics that we've discussed. These are just based off personal experience and Emily's experience, our own experiences. And we, any advice given does not mean it's something that you have to do. So yeah, thank you, Emily. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. And as always, if anyone wants to reach out and talk, even if they're having their own struggles and they just wanna talk, feel free to reach out via social media. LinkedIn, if you want to connect and talk work, go for it. I'm always here to talk. Remember, you've got this and we've got you. Now go inspire the world. <laughs>